Dear friends, we've, we've, uh, as we've made our way through the book of Acts, we've seen so many different stories now of the Apostle Paul. And we're beginning to learn a lot about him, aren't we? Uh, primarily, I think so far, we've seen that Paul was a man of indomitable courage and that he didn't seem to see fear or he didn't seem to be afraid of it at any rate. Uh, danger meant nothing to him because burning in the soul of the Apostle Paul was the call, the call he had from Jesus himself to go and to shine the light of the gospel to the Gentiles. And that call was so strong in his soul that he saw no danger, he saw no obstacle, but he pressed forward. So that's the Apostle Paul. But today we see something of the humanness of the Apostle Paul. We see something of his, uh, uh, a different side of Paul that I think will be very interesting to us. A very practical sermon this morning, uh, delving into some things that uh, some, some things of our own character that we can see in the Apostle Paul and then to try to reflect on those uh, for our own character as we try to live in a God-honoring way in this life. Now, the story that we have before us is the story of Paul in Jerusalem. And you'll remember last time, Paul tried to defend himself before a mob of Jewish people and uh, our hearts broke to see the Jewish people so earnestly and zealously rejecting their own Messiah. But now Paul's been rescued by the Romans from being torn apart by the Jewish people. But now the Romans still don't know who is this guy and why is he in such trouble. The Romans here, my friends, are in something of a desperate situation. Because remember that in the Roman Empire, whenever there was a riot in a city, that was a big, big deal. That really brought down the wrath of the top, the top, uh, the leaders of the Roman Empire. They did not like riots and mobs. The Romans loved security. They loved order. And, uh, and they liked power. And so this is not a good thing. And so the Romans are very determined to get to the bottom of this. Now, we can be thankful that the Romans also seem to have a love for justice here, right? They don't just say, well, Paul's obviously the problem here. Let's just do away with him. They, uh, they, they want to find out what is the real problem. Now, in order to do this, the uh, Roman uh, legions call for, an, you might say, an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin. This is not one of their formal meetings, right, where they sat you know, in all their places, but this is a rush, a, a come together quick. I need to know, the Romans are saying, I need, we need to know why this man, Paul, what are the charges you're bringing against him, and what's the issue here? So this meeting of the Sanhedrin comes together. You can see that at the beginning of verse 23. And Paul immediately protests his innocence, right? This is the same man who, by the way, in another context, said, I am the chief of sinners. But now, standing before the Romans, he says, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now, again, this is a very different context, isn't it? Right? Before God, Paul saw himself as guilty. But before this council, Paul says, I came into this city. I did not violate your Jewish laws about the temple. Uh, remember, remember, there was a... At some point, there was an uh, accusation that Paul had brought a man named Trophimus, uh, who was an Ephesian Gentile, and the Jews were concerned that Paul had brought him into the temple. And here, Paul says, no, I did not do that. I have not violated any of your laws. I have not violated the Roman laws. I have a perfectly clear conscience. Now, the high priest, who is Ananias, and children, I think that's on your notes there, the name of the high priest, 
Well, the high priest here is named Ananias. By the way, not the same Ananias as the one who tried Jesus. This is a man who had quite a reputation for cruelty and for being a very proud, overbearing man. And now this man, Ananias, says, slap him. Right? As soon as he hears Paul say, I've lived with a perfectly clear conscience, Ananias gives an order to slap him. Now, likely that didn't happen. The Romans wouldn't have allowed that to happen. Don't forget that the Romans have just discovered that Paul is a Roman citizen. He cannot be beaten or even slapped right, without a fair trial. So likely the, the Roman guards would have stepped in and prevented that. But at any rate, that uh, slap or that strike outrages Paul. And here again, you see something of Paul's character, right? He flares up. He's angry, right? That was, a, that was the thing that really, really angered him. And look what he says. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. So uh, you can imagine a, a wall that's been painted. And here the, the picture is a, a wooden wall that's rotten. It's decaying. It's bad. It doesn't need to be painted. It needs to be replaced. But you know how some of these people do these things nowadays, right? When they're flipping a house, they'll just put, put a layer of paint over it, right? Or a used car salesman will put a layer of paint over some rust, right? And a, a week later after you bought the car, all the rust comes back out again. Okay, so here you got it, right? Paul says, you whitewashed wall. In other words, you're just a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You have a, a, a show, a fake show of piety on the front, but inwardly, you're nothing but a rotten uh, person, a scoundrel. He says, do you, do you sit, in other words, do you sit in the judgment seat there to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? In other words, here you're going to, presume to try me by the standards of our law, but you just gave an order that violates that law, and now you're going to judge me for breaking that law? Again, Paul is showing the hypocrisy, right? Ananias, you don't care about the law. You just ordered me to be struck, and you, know, you haven't even heard my case. So Paul is very angry, right? He, he, I think we all know that, that feeling, right, of the temper, the temper letting go there. Well, the bystanders in verse 4 quickly remind Paul, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul's response is, I, did, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. Now this is very interesting, and people have puzzled over this. People have puzzled over this because how could Paul not have known? First of all, the high priest would have had unique garments on. He would have had unique clothing. He would have had his regalia, we would call it, right, on. Second of all, he would have been seated in a, in a place of honor. How could Paul possibly not have recognized that he was the high priest? Even if Paul couldn't recognize his face, how could Paul not have recognized that this man, even if you don't know who he is, he's clearly the high priest? Well, this brings us to, to one of the interesting things about Paul, and that it appears that Paul, there are hints throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, that Paul did not have good eyesight. And, and we can immediately think, right, of, of being on the road to Damascus, right, when at high noon, when there's already a bright sun, Paul was struck down by a blaze of light, right? And God brought him to his knees, and that was Paul's uh, conversion from Judaism to Christianity. Now, again, we're speculating here, right? Let's be clear about that. The Bible's not explicit about this. And we do know that Paul was blinded by that light, that he went into Damascus, and that another Ananias was sent to him to give him his sight back again. But it seems likely that Paul was permanently injured by that blaze of light. And again, I know this is not so important, but I, I think you'll find it interesting. 
in Galatians 6, verse 11, you find Paul saying an interesting comment. Remember that Galatians is written to the churches Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And in Galatians 6, Paul is talking about a sickness that he had. In Galatians 6, he says, I'm sorry, that's a, that's a different verse. In Galatians 6, verse 11, uh, we are reminded where Paul writes, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And people have picked up on that and thought, why is Paul writing with such large letters? Is it possible that Paul is nearsighted? It seems, it seems that way, right? Because he's writing with large print, right? So he can see. So maybe Paul had, a, had an issue there with, with seeing. And we do know that Paul used a secretary, right? He used what, what in those days was called an amanuensis to write his letters. Somebody else actually wrote the letters while Paul would have either dictated it or maybe even just collaborated with the person in the writing of the letter. Maybe, again, because his vision wasn't great. But now this is what I was referring to before. In Galatians 4 and verse 15, Galatians 4 and verse 15, Paul is writing about a sickness that he had. And he's writing to these churches and he says, Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Now the first thing we have to say is that plucking out your eyes and giving them to someone was a very common expression in those days. It had nothing to do with you had sick eyes. So again, this is not a, not a, a slam dunk, you might say, that Paul had bad eyes. But you do wonder if maybe this was meant more literally, that Paul's eyes hurt him so badly and that the, Galatian, uh, the people of the Galatian churches loved him so much that they would have plucked out their healthy eye and given it to Paul because his eyes were causing him so much pain and probably headaches too. Again, it's, it's difficult. Other people have pointed to the fact that when Paul was preaching in Ephesus, why didn't he notice that Eutychus was sleeping in the window? Furthermore, when, when, uh, when Paul was shipwrecked and he landed on the island of Miletus, remember that? And he gathered up a bundle of sticks. How did he not notice that there was a viper hiding in, those, in that bundle of sticks? In our own text here, did you notice that it said right at the beginning there in Acts 23 and verse 1, notice the very first words there. It said, Paul, looking intently at the council. Is it possible that that means that he was staring, he was squinting, he was trying to see? Again, if Paul's vision wasn't great, maybe he couldn't see real well. And maybe this explains, too, why he missed the fact that Ananias was the high priest. That would start to make sense now, wouldn't it? That Paul figured he was just speaking to a group of, of hastily gathered Sanhedrin members. And he missed the fact that this man, Ananias, standing there and who had spoken to him, was the high priest. Again, a great deal of speculation there, but rather interesting. Uh, and by the way, others have pointed out that when God talks about Paul having a thorn in the flesh, that that may very well have been his eye issue, possibly causing him pain both in his eyes and in his head, giving him bad headaches. We know that headaches are often caused by, by uh, vision problems. At any rate, enough on that. At any rate, for whatever reason, Paul does not recognize that this man is Ananias, right? And he quickly backs up. He quickly backs up and says, he apologizes, right? He says, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written. And then he quotes from 
of the, the Old Testament law. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now I have three lessons that I'd like to bring to you. Three applications on that story before I move on to the rest of the story. Now my friends, in the first place I see here real strength. May I call it strength of character or may I call it moral strength. We've talked about this before here in this church. That meekness or that virtue by which we are able to restrain our passions, by which we are able to rule our spirit, is real strength. I know our culture uh, is constantly teaching us something different. That strength is giving it back twice as hard to the person who gave it to you. Now, Paul acts on those principles first, right? His initial reaction is rage. He flies off the handle in a sense, right? And he, and he gives it back. You whitewashed wall, he says to the high priest. But Paul has the spirit of God. And Paul has this moral strength. And he quickly recovers himself, doesn't he? And what an example for that this morning. I know nobody in this church struggles with a hot temper. Okay? But there you see, my friends, that kind of strength. That as soon as Paul is triggered that way, he quickly recovers himself, doesn't he? The Spirit of God, working with Paul's own spirit, right? Paul quickly recovers himself. He sees his error, and he pushes that that temper, that unruly temper, his unruly spirit, he pushes it down. Paul had a temper, my friends. There's no question about that. Paul had a temper equal to any one of ours. No question about it. But here you see the example for every one of us that Paul had the strength, not weakness. Our culture tells us constantly it's weakness. But Paul has the, weak, the, the strength to dial it down, to push it down, to hold it under. I'm not sure who said this. It might have been Martin Luther. It sounds like Martin Luther. I'm not sure who actually said this. But uh, he said uh, that we need to ride the horse of our own spirit. We need to rule our own spirit. We need to ride that horse and not the horse ride us. My friends, how many of us, right, let's be honest with ourselves, we are driven by our passions. We are driven by our tempers. We are driven by our feelings. And this chapter before us, this story before us, teaches us to, to have that kind of strength where we can rule our spirit, where we can control our feelings and our passions and hold them under control. Passions, emotions, feelings like that are a very powerful thing in our life, very useful thing in our life. They drive us to do things that need to be done. They give us motivation. I heard a man one time say that, that emotions, feelings are like gas in the tank. You can have an engine. But if there's no fuel in that tank, it's going nowhere. But he said every ship also has a rudder. Every car has a steering wheel, right? And if your car only has fuel in the tank and you just go sailing forward with no steering, with no rudder in that ship, you're going to crash. And so Paul gives us an outstanding example today, my friends, of real moral strength. He, his respect for the fifth command, right? Honor your father and your mother kicks in. And he restrains his anger. And he apologizes for it, freely and frankly, even quoting scripture into his own condemnation. You shall not speak evil of a ruler, which he had just done. So a, a, a wonderful example given us of real moral strength. Lesson two. 
Lesson two, my friends, respect for authority is not something we owe only to those who have earned it. If you're taking notes, you can say respect for authority, not earned. Now, of course, I could, I could stand up here and say that those who are in authority should seek to earn the respect of those they rule. That's a whole other subject, and of course, that's the obvious truth. But now I speak to those of us who are in, and that's all of us, right? Even if you are in a position of authority here, you might not be over here. All of us submit to authority. We are not called to respect only those who have earned that authority. Here's another lesson. Think about what Paul's dealing with here. The legal process for Paul is an utter disaster. He almost got scourged. He almost got whipped senseless by these Roman people before he finally reminded them of his Roman citizenship. He's not even getting that much respect from the Jews because they already beat him in the temple, right? Yesterday or last week we considered that. They beat him in the temple courts without a trial. I mean, Paul has been abused like no one else. Furthermore, what Paul said here, you whitewashed wall, as, as sharp as it is, it's certainly the truth, and, and many of the people who knew Ananias would have completely agreed with Paul. Again, this man had a reputation. But Paul apologizes, because Paul understands that all authority must be respected. There's only one exception, right? There's only one exception to this rule, and that is when someone commands us to do something clearly against the word of God, then we must disobey, civil disobedience. But respect for authority is not something we owe only to those who have earned it. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. You know, I remember as a young man, a young man, but let me, let me speak to you and, and, and young women too, I guess. I, I, I'll just be honest with you, I, I did not like this verse. It's, to be honest, I, I hated this verse. 1 Peter 2.18, I'll never forget reading this, and my own anger kind of rising up against it. I resented this verse. 1 Peter 2, verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now that's not saying that if you're in a situation at work, and your boss is unreasonable, that you can't quit and find another job. Of course, that's completely open to you. But one course of action, my friends, that is not open to you is to be disrespectful to his authority or to her authority. The fifth commandment rules that out. And Paul's example here, again, is such a clear example of respect because, again, Paul quickly corrects himself. Paul says, respect is owed to this man, Ananias, who is tyrannical, who is cruel, and yet he's appointed there by the providence of God. And therefore, I owe him the respect of his office. I've heard it, my friends. I, 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 thought, I, I think this way myself. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. That I don't have to respect a boss who doesn't respect me. That I don't have to be respectful to that police officer who pulled me over for no reason. Or at least you think no reason. Whatever it may be, whatever person may be in authority over you. Children, you have a teacher at school, and maybe that teacher is not your favorite teacher. Maybe that class is kind of boring. Maybe you don't like how she acts this way or how he acts that way. But respect is not something that is conditioned 
upon the competence or the respectableness, right, of the person who wields that authority. But we must bow to their authority based on the word of God. And Paul gives us a clear example. Now the reason for that is, the reason for that is very simple because Romans 13 teaches us that all authority comes from God. I think about our own president, my friends, and I think about the jokes that we, 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 we say about him. It's not right. It's not right. It's, it's, not, it's not a God-honoring practice. You should not allow those jokes in your homes, men. That should not be allowed because it's a violation of the fifth commandment. And I know it's easy. I know it's easy, especially with, with our current president, but uh, every one of us is going to get old, right? So, uh, I, I don't think those things are respectable. Now, my thoughts also, and I, I think probably your thoughts too, go back to the, to the COVID, the times of COVID, right? When we struggled hard to know, you know, should we obey this commandment or should we not? Those were difficult, difficult times, weren't they? Some of the laws coming out of the state and local governments were so absurd and so ridiculous that you, 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 you just thought, I, I, I'm not going to do this. And I'm not going to go through each of those laws and decide which ones we should obey and which ones. I don't even want to go back to that. It, that was an extremely difficult time. But let us be clear on the principle given us this morning that authority is due to every person in authority, regardless of how they wield it. A third thing, lesson, a third lesson on this story, my friends, on the same token of authority, is instilling this attitude in our children. I speak to parents now of, of children, younger and older. How do we instill this attitude in our children? We refuse to bail them out of situations where they are being disciplined. They're at basketball practice, and the coach says something, and even in your own mind you think, that sounds a little ridiculous. But you know that the fifth commandment teaches to respect those who are in authority, even when they... Blow it, even when they're not entirely rational or it doesn't make entirely sense. And you know that that virtue is so important to instill that character trait in your child that immediately you need to defend that coach. Because when you teach your child that dad or mom will bail them out if the ref makes a bad call or if your teacher at school gets you in trouble and you don't really think you are in trouble, You teach your children the exact opposite. Now you teach your children that they can pick and choose which authority they're going to respect. Now, of course, this has its limits, right? I understand that. There's a time when you do need to act. Okay, but now we're talking about the vast majority of cases. And how common it was uh, in my own teaching experience for parents to come in and to defend their children uh, in front of their children. Now, I, have, I, I completely understand when you need to go to a teacher and confront them about something the teacher said. But I'm talking about a meeting where the, the, the child in question was sitting right there. Now, I'm not saying that to defend my own pride as a teacher. I'm saying you are injuring, you are bringing moral injury to that child by defending that child. You know, our parents were so much wiser, weren't they? Because what did your mom, what did your dad say? You get in trouble at school, you're getting it again at home. Right? I can remember my dad saying that, and your dad's probably said the same thing. But now our culture teaches us something different. And now when a child gets a bad grade at school, there's, there's the parent at the door complaining. 
But see, this is not a biblical thing, is it? I'm not, I'm not just pushing my own hobby horse here, my friends. Paul clearly teaches us by his example that authority is to be obeyed, even when it crosses us or even when it appears to be irrational. You know, there's a spiritual dimension to this. How will they submit to God and God's law if you've raised them in such a way that they can pick and choose the authority that they like? Well, this one I like. He's good, so of course I'm going to respect him. But that teacher over there, but they have to submit to God, my friends. If they don't submit to God, they can't be saved. Salvation starts by owning our own sin and guilt before God and taking the low place of the publican and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But we raise our children to think that they're entitled to be their own authority. And of course, such children even struggle to go into the workplace because they have a hard time even submitting to their bosses. So they, it's not only just spiritual, but even in the, in, the, in, the, in the business world, they struggle even to be a good employee because they can't submit. They believe their way is the best way. So I would, I would, I would counsel you that if you really want to instill this attitude in your children, you need to support your, your, your teachers your coaches, refs, things, you know, people like that in authority over your children, even when in your own mind you think this, this doesn't quite sound right. It's a greater thing to instill that virtue in our children of respect for authority than to somehow vindicate them because they were wronged. A hundred times let your child be wronged. There's a lesson to be learned there too. Then I continue with the story here. So those three lessons... The story continues because we have uh, Paul now uh, and the, uh, my, my second point here is divide and conquer because Paul, uh, having recovered his, his, good, uh, his good sense again and uh, he now notices that the people in front of him and of course Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin at one time so he was very familiar with them. Paul was a Pharisee. And he remembers that the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't get along. They have a very vigorous disagreement about uh, spiritual things. And by spirit, spiritual things, I mean things of the Spirit. The, the, the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in angels. The Sadducees were kind of the rationalists of the day. And the Pharisees, of course, they believed in all those things. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees were bitter against each other. They, they really, there was a bitter, bitter divide in the Sanhedrin so now Paul decides on this strategy, right? Notice that it says in verse 6, but perceiving, that's a key word there, perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul decides to, Paul decides to act on that, that principle of dividing and conquer. So he starts out by saying, I am a Pharisee. In verse 6, and the son of the Pharisees. And then he says, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Now, This raises questions again, doesn't it, about Paul's thinking here. First of all, is it honest that Paul was a Pharisee? Paul says, I am a Pharisee. Was that an honest statement? I mean, Paul certainly at one time was a Pharisee. But how could Paul, consistent with the truth, say, I am a Pharisee? Well, my friends, I think that in this regard, we can defend Paul. Because I think I said something of this last week too, that Paul believes that the real Jew, the real Jew is the one who believes in Jesus. Because Jesus is the Messiah that the Jewish people are waiting and expecting. 
And so if you were a real Jew, if you were a real Pharisee, if you really were being true to what you believe as a Pharisee, you would come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. So I think Paul, now again, that's not how the people would have heard it, but I think that's how Paul understands it. I am a Pharisee. I am the real Pharisee who respects the Messiah who has come. You people are not the real Pharisees because you don't respect the Messiah who has come. So I think Paul is, I think we can defend his statement there that he's saying something that's honest. I am a Pharisee. Again, honest as, as he understands the word Pharisee. But what about the second statement? Is this honest? When Paul says, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. By the way, before I say something about that, let me just say, my friends, remember that the, book of, the, the whole Bible right, records all the sins of the saints, not just their virtues, right? So by, by asking this question, is Paul honest, right? I'm not questioning the truth of Scripture because the, the Scripture will truly record for us the sins of the saints as we, as we see all over the Old Testament, right? So, so this is an appropriate question for us to ask. Is Paul telling the truth when he says, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead? Because when we look back in the chapters of Acts, recall that in chapter 22, it was when Paul said, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's when the people got angry. And how could Paul say, I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead, when the Pharisees accept the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead? It'd only be the Sadducees who would, who would object to that. And, and so when we go back and look at at what Paul teaches, it doesn't appear that this was the doctrine that they were so upset with him for, his teaching regarding the resurrection of the dead. Now, some people have defended Paul by saying he's not talking about the resurrection of all the dead. He's talking about the resurrection of the man, Jesus, his resurrection from the dead. Now, that would have been much closer to the truth, right? Because that is why all the Pharisees and Sadducees would have objected to that. And there's some support for that idea. And when it says hope, brethren, I am, uh, uh, and I am on trial for the hope. Does that mean the hope of the Messiah and his resurrection from the dead? You could understand it that way, but that doesn't seem to be the, the obvious meaning of it. And, and besides, well, at any rate, it doesn't seem to be the, the, the way you would read that in the first place. Some have said this is a fulfillment of Jesus' words in Mark 13, verse 11. In Mark 13, verse 11, Jesus promises the disciples and says, they're going to bring you before their courts, but in that hour, do not worry about what you are going to say. It will be given you in that moment what to say. And that God had sovereignly given Paul these words to speak. I don't find that very persuasive myself, but I have to say, my friends, I think myself, having studied this passage, that Paul recognizes that this is war. That he has no hope for getting a fair trial from these people. They're out of their minds. They're in a frenzy. And so he's doing here a tactical move, choosing the doctrine that would most divide them and throwing that out there in an attempt to divide and conquer. So he chooses the doctrine that he knew would most inflame this division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Was he really on trial for that doctrine? I think we can say that he was on trial, that that would have been one of the doctrines that he would have been on trial for. 
I don't think it was the leading or the most important doctrine that he was on trial for, but I don't think Paul is telling a, an open lie by saying he's on trial for the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees certainly would have been outraged at that doctrine. So again, I, I'm not giving you a clear answer here because I'm going to kind of leave that. I will say, though, at this point, the desperation of the moment, Paul drives straight for this strategy of divide and conquer, and it succeeds. It certainly succeeds because the Sadducees are in an uproar while the scribes of the Pharisaic party stand up and begin defending Paul. We see that in verse 9. In verse 9, some of the Pharisees even begin to say, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. So they even grant the fact that Paul might be sincere, that an angel really did speak to him and show him that Jesus was the Messiah. By the way, I think I've said this before also in this series on the book of Acts. Remember, the Pharisees are the kindest people to Paul. The Pharisees, many of them were converted. Many of them came over to the Christian faith. The Sadducees would have nothing to do with Paul. So what lesson can we learn from this? And I really struggled here, dear friends, to think of a lesson for us this morning. And I think, I think one lesson that when we are in trouble, when we are being persecuted for the faith, uh, even if someday we would be dragged in front of a court to give an account of what we believe, that we're not then called upon to surrender the use of our mind. And that we can use every tactic to gain our freedom that is consistent with the truth. We are not allowed to lie. That's not allowed. But we are allowed, and again, I, I hope I'm not saying this wrong, but we are allowed to dodge and to weave, right, and to use, as Paul does here, to use our minds to escape. One of the most humorous examples that I remember was uh, the church father Athanasius. Athanasius was a man who stood strong for the deity of Christ over against Arius. And one day he was, a warrant was issued for his arrest, and a detachment of Roman soldiers was looking for him. And so Athanasius fled. He got on a boat and he started down the river. <clears throat> he started down the river. And as he was going down the river, up from the opposite direction came this detachment of Roman troops looking for him. And they pulled up to the boat and, and they said, we're looking for Athanasius. Have you seen him? And Athanasius stepped up and said, yes, I have seen him. He's on this river. Uh, you, you, you'll catch him soon if you continue, or something like that. I forget his exact words. And so they, they kept you know, sailing down the river looking for him. Again, was Athanasius bound at that time to tell them all the truth, that I am Athanasius? I don't think so. And I think Paul's example helps us there, that Athanasius was within his rights to tell them, yes, I have seen him, and yes, he is on this river. And so they carried on their search, and Athanasius went in the opposite direction, and his life was preserved. Again, there's, I'm sure, much more to be said about that and many questions too, right? But Paul does set us an example here. My friends, I close the sermon by pointing out to you Paul's real protector. Paul's real protector. And what a touching thing it is to read in verse 11. In verse 11 of chapter 23, But on the night immediately following... The Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Was Paul maybe a little discouraged as he lay in those barracks, knowing that he had just about been torn apart by the Jewish people, knowing that he had just about been scourged, whipped by the Romans, 
And there, Jesus Christ himself appears. And what is the thing, my friends, that gives courage to Paul in this moment? In a sense, in a word, Jesus says, Paul, I have a plan. I have a decree. And it is right on schedule. Now, my friends, when Paul looked with his physical eyes at what had happened, he saw chaos. He didn't see a plan. He saw disorder. He saw people yelling. He saw a Sanhedrin, normally intelligent, scholarly men, throwing dust in the air. I mean, how childish can that be? To pick up dust and throw it in the air. You're so angry. Does this look like God has a plan? Maybe that's even part of the reason for Paul's discouragement. Lord, what's happening here? It looks like everything's, everything's going to pieces. There's no plan here. But Jesus comes. And he testifies to Paul's spirit. And he says, you have witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem. You must also witness for me at Rome. God has a plan. God has a decree. Paul, it's right on schedule. All the yelling, all the commotion, all the quarreling, it's all in my plan. It's all moving right along on schedule. Everything. True, Paul, you can't see it. But this vision of Jesus to his servant gives Paul the eyes of faith. The eyes of faith. Paul, don't look at your, don't just take what you see with your physical eyes, but see it with the eyes of faith. Now, Paul, you can see something. Do you remember Gehazi and the prophet Elisha when they were sitting in their in their city, and remember, the army of the Syrians had come, and Gehazi looks out, and he basically says, we're, we're done for. Look at that huge army. And Elisha says, Gehazi, there's more with us than are with them. And then he prays, Lord, open his eyes. And Gehazi is given for a moment to see with the eyes of faith the hills full of the hosts and the armies of God's angels. Far more on the side of Elisha than this puny Syrian army over here. And now God gives the same vision to his servant, Paul. He says, Paul, open your eyes. Open your eyes. My plan is marching forward step by step, right on schedule. All the chaos and all the commotion that you've seen has not thrown me off schedule. You've witnessed for me here in Jerusalem. I have a plan that you are also going to witness for me in Rome. And all this fits together like hand in glove. Isn't that interesting to us, my friends? Isn't that encouraging to us? I imagine that there's people here this morning who are passing through experiences in your life that seem completely the opposite of a plan, or at least a good plan. My friends, have faith this morning that there is a plan that there is an eternal decree of our sovereign God who has everything moving along exactly on schedule. No delay, no mishaps. That train never gets derailed. It may look like it to us, and it does look like it to us. But what a beautiful thing, my friends, to see Jesus speaking to Paul and to see Jesus speaking to you this morning is saying, you've witnessed for me at Jerusalem. 
you're going to witness for me at Rome also. Again, I have a plan. That applies to you, and it applies to me. Let's take courage from that, my friends, as we live our life in this world. May God bless these words to us. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, what courage we may take from this sovereign word from you. A sovereign word from a sovereign God. You have testified about me at Jerusalem. To Paul it seemed all commotion and all chaos. But to you, O Lord, it was perfect order. Everything, every scream, every yell, every dust, particle of dust thrown into the air, it all had its own purpose and its own meaning. And it was all laid out from before the foundation of the world. Lord, so many of us, so many of us object and, and resent the doctrine of your predestination. But Lord, teach us to take comfort in it. Teach us to take courage in it, as we see Paul doing here this morning. Lord, we do pray that with regards to the practical matters that we also covered this morning, of respect for authority, that you'd give us that kind of moral strength to catch ourselves when our tempers uh, break loose from, from the normal restraints that we keep them under. And help us, Lord, when we do fly off the handle, to recover our strength again, to be like the Apostle Paul, to make the apologies that need to be made, and to push forward, and to push forward with the work and the ministry that you've called us to do. And Lord, we do pray that our children, too, would learn to bow before you from their youngest days, and to, and, to, and to know that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Lord, we are taught every day, morning and night, by our culture that to bear a yoke is weakness, that to bear a yoke is a shame and a curse. But Lord, this morning, we glory and we boast in being bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Just poor, worthless slaves. What a happy life. And far from worthless Lord, I pray that you would bless us then uh, with this self-denial, with this pilgrim kind of life, with this slave life, and teach us, O oh Lord, to make our boast in it. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to number 260 in the blue hymnal. Two hundred and sixty, where we hope to sing in verse two, Thy protector is the Lord, shade for thee he will afford, neither sun nor moon shall smite, God shall guard by day and night, he will ever keep thy soul. What would harm he will control in the home and by the way he will keep thee day by day. So both verses of two hundred and sixty in the blue hymnal.
The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.